My name is Emmanuel. It's been a pleasure being with you guys here at Providence for the, over the, about a month now. It's a joy. Uh, Providence has really been a gift to myself and to my, my family. So I want to thank you guys for having us be a part of Providence. But enough about me. Now, uh, in his opening book, his 1961 book, A.W. Tozer says this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about us is not who we're going to marry. It is not where our kids are going to go to school. It is not our retirement plan. Not even the church we're going to attend. The most important thing about us, the most important thing we can think about is who God is. And why is that? Well, because our thoughts about God has implications for our lives. I remind you of what Jesus says to his disciples. Uh, he told them, hey, who do you say I am? He asked them that question because that question had implications for them. They would either accept him as Lord, they would either reject him or take advantage of him. That question has implications for our lives. So, who do you say God is? Right? I believe that question, like I said, has implications for us and it's very important. And there's three reasons why I would say it's important. Uh, first, it dictates how our lives will look. Our worldview, our aspirations. So, for example, if you believe there is no God, you will live life as if this life is all we have. 80 years, 90 years, and that's it. If you believe God is a genie in the sky who grants you wishes, you will treat him as such. Our thoughts about God are important because it dictates our life. Not only that, our thoughts about God are important because if we do not realize who God is, we are not worshiping the right God. We're worshiping a God that we've made up, that we've created and placed in the place of God. Our thoughts about God, knowing God is important. Third reason, because it's essential to being a Christian. Jesus talked about his father, talked about God, talked about himself over and over again. And if we do not know this God correctly, we're not worshiping the right God. And we're also not in line what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what he taught about God. Knowing God is important essential for our lives. So in light of that, we're in a three-week series called In All of the Trinity. In All of the Trinity. I want to thank first the elders, teaching team, for allowing me to uh, teach and speak on this particular series. Um, a couple of things, the reason why I want to thank you is first, I'm studying this particular topic right now. Along with this, I, I am passionate about theology, particularly the Trinity. I, I love Star Wars. I love the MCU, right? I love superhero and, and movies and so forth. I love cinnamon rolls, wink, wink. <laughs> but you get me talking about the Trinity, we'll be here all day talking about it because this is our God. So thank you to the elders, teaching team for allowing me to do this. It's a passion of mine in all of the Trinity. Now, in this series, what I want to do is, um, this whole series would be a whole sermon. Three messages, 
but really one overall sermon. And throughout this series, what, what I want to do is I want us to think through how will we respond if someone approached us, someone came to us and said, hey, what's the Trinity about? How would you respond? I want to walk us through, guide us through how to respond if that were the case. I want to do that by answering three questions. The three questions are this. Why do we say there is a trinity? Why do we say God is triune? Second, what is the trinity? When we speak about it, what are we talking about? And then third, how should we respond? How should we live our lives in light of the fact that God is triune? So throughout this series, we'll answer these three questions. Today, I want to address the first one. Why do we say God is triune? Now, as Christians, we would argue that God has made himself known. God has revealed himself throughout creation. From the tiniest ants to the giant animals out there. Humanity, our lives. He's made himself known through our lives. He's made himself known throughout all of creation. But the clearest, deepest way he's made himself known is through his word. And so his word should tell us who God is. Now, one caveat. The word Trinity is not found in your Bible. You won't find it there. Well, if that's the case, then why say God is Trinity if it's not found in Scripture? Illustration. If I never said I was married, which I am, but I never said it, but you saw me wearing this ring right here, and you saw me spending time with a particular lady, and we had kids, and you saw pictures of us, you would assume I'm what? Married. Even though I never said I was what? Married. While the word Trinity is not found in Scripture, you won't find it anywhere, the concepts, the realities are found in Scripture. And today I want to walk us through and show us where in Scripture do we see ideas, concepts of God being triune. So, you guys ready to go with me? All right, here we go. Here we go. Um, the Bible opens up saying, Bereshit uh, Baha Elohim. In the beginning, God. Very first words. The very first being we meet is this being called God. In the second sentence, we discover this God has a spirit. And this God's spirit is moving, is doing things distinct of God. He's hovering over the water. So you have this God, and this God has a spirit. Continues on. In Genesis 15, a man named Abraham, God calls him, right? Father Abraham had many sons and many sons. I guess you guys know the song very well. God calls him. says, I'll give you land and seed and blessing. And Abraham has, has no kids. And eventually God shows up over and over again to remind him, hey, I made a promise with you. I'm going to be faithful to my promise. And Genesis 15, we encounter, it says, the word of the Lord appeared to Abraham, or Abram at this point. And he calls him and speaks to him. In verse 4, it says, the word speaks to him. And in verse 5, the word leads him outside. So God has a spirit, God has a word, and it seems like God's word is acting to be distinct from this God. But it goes on. The word angel 
comes from the Greek angelos, which means messenger. In Hebrew, it's malach. In Genesis, Leviticus, even the book of Judges, we encounter this, this being, and we know God has angels out there, right? Lots of angels. But there's one particular angel, one particular messenger of God who is unique. In Genesis 16, uh, Hagar, who is the mistress of Sarah, or Sarai, is mistreated, and so she runs away. As she's running away, she encounters an angel of the Lord, or the messenger of the Lord, the messenger of Yahweh. And the messenger speaks with Hagar and tells her to go back. And so she eventually goes back. But when she finishes the conversation, she says, I've seen the God who sees me. Well, who did she see? She saw an angel and she interprets that angel to be who? God. So God has this messenger that is distinct from God. But when the people encounter him, they say they encounter who? God himself. Exodus 3, part of my favorite passage in all scripture, it's really unique. Um, Abram's family, they grow. They eventually go end up in Egypt as slaves for a, for a long period of time. And while they're enslaved, a little boy is born and he grows up in Pharaoh's palace. He eventually runs away from Egypt because he committed a crime and Pharaoh wants his head. And he goes to Midian for about, Midian for about 40 years. He has a wife. He has kids. And he's comfortable. A little pastor Jason says, he says, hey, God does not call us to be comfortable. If we remain in our comfortable lifestyle, we'll miss out on what God has for us. Moses would have been a, a footnote in history if he remained in Midian, but yet God met him. And when God met him, it happened like this. He's taking care of sheep and he sees a bush that is on fire, but is not burning up. So he's curious, walks to it, looks at it. We're told in verse 2, the messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Moses, Moses, take off your sandals. But quickly in verse 4, we discover the Lord himself is talking to Moses. This messenger is distinct from God, and yet over and over again, this messenger is God himself. What we're seeing over and so far is this God that we meet in Genesis 1, He's multifaceted. He's unique. He's a spirit that is him, but different from him. He has a word that is him, but different from him. He has a, a messenger that is him, but also different from him. Happens all throughout the Old Testament. Another example, Isaiah has a prophecy about a coming Messiah, coming Savior of the people. In verse 6 of chapter 9, he says, This coming Messiah, we will call him Almighty God. Wait, a human? We call Almighty God? We'll call him everlasting what? Father. We continue. Book of Proverbs talks about wisdom and wise living. Chapter 8, the writer says, hey, when God made the world, God did so through his wisdom. And then wisdom becomes personified and begins talking, hey, guys, I was there with God when he made the world. In fact, God made the world through me. Multifaceted. A spirit, a word, a messenger, and wisdom. 
They're doing what only God can do while being distinct from God himself. And there's countless more examples I could have provided us this morning. In the Old Testament, we discover this God is unique and different from all other creatures. Now, at some point, this carpenter showed up. This builder showed up. A rabbi. He began to call people to follow him, to follow his way of life. And his followers, when they wrote about him, when they reflected on their time with him, they saw, hey, this carpenter was more than a simple, mere human. So, for example, one of his followers called John, uh, he wrote in, in, in the introduction of, of his book called The Gospel of John, he says, Enarche ha lagos, which reminds us of Genesis 1 where it says, in the beginning God made the world. But John says, in the beginning was the lagos. Now, the lagos, we translate a word because of English translation, etc. But the lagos is this idea of the principle or the thing that sustains all of life, all of creation. Whatever governs everything, that is what the Lagos is. And John says that Lagos in the beginning was with God. But wait, that Lagos was God himself. With God, but also is God. Lady Wisdom was with God. The angel of the Lord is with God and represents God. They saw Jesus to be this principle that sustains, governs all of life. Take a deep breath. Breathe out. That happens because of this Lagos. If I told you to stand, if I told you to run, if I told you to jump, if I told you to, to, to raw, to whatever, all that you do happens because of this Lagos, this word. And John tells us this word became flesh. He tabernacles, a word John makes up among us. And John says, we saw him, we touched him, we ate with him. He was more than a mere human. Let's stop there. John records an event. It says, at one point, Jesus said, me, Jesus, and the Father are one. Not one in purpose, but we're one in being. I'll explain that here in a second. Thomas, after the resurrection, sees Jesus in front of him. He's shocked. Jesus says, hey, touch my hands. Touch my side. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Paul, the apostle, several times calls Jesus God. And at one point he calls him not only God, but Savior which is a title only reserved for God. So even in the New Testament, what we see is Jesus' followers acknowledge or are aware that he is a human, yes, but he's more than human. Now here's one where we don't really kept capitals in English because of the translation, but you know Christ is called Yahweh over and over again in the New Testament. And here's how. About 300 years before Jesus was born, the Jewish people, because they couldn't read Hebrew, there's a whole history there, they had the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, translated from Hebrew into Greek. When they translated it, whenever the word Yahweh came up, instead of saying Yahweh, they used the word kurios in Greek, which is translated as Lord. 
So in the Old Testament, when you see the Lord God, the Lord God, what you see there is kurias theos, the Lord God or Yahweh God. The New Testament writers, when talking about Jesus, they will refer to him as the Lord. And the catch thing is here, we are referring to him as Yahweh. So in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, verse 3, he is called the Lord. The implication is Jesus is Yahweh, the name revered, reserved only for God. That's who Jesus is. Now they do this because Christ himself refers to himself as Yahweh. In John 8, uh, they're gathered, the people around Jesus are talking and, and they're kind of teasing him. They say, hey, we know who Abraham is, but, but, but who are you? And Jesus tells them this. Before Abraham, I am, I am, or ego in me in the Greek. The way Greek works is he could have simply said ego, but he says ego in me, I am Yahweh. In John 18, they're coming to arrest him, the soldiers are, and they ask him, looking for Jesus. This is a cool scene. They're coming, again, these are soldiers, they got weapons. Here's Jesus by himself. He's tired. More likely, he's finished praying. He's exhausted from sweating blood and so forth. They're coming to arrest him. They're the ones with power, with authority, with force. Hey, we're looking for Jesus. You know where he is? Echo in me. I am Yahweh. And the text tells us they fell down. Right? Christ refers to himself as Yahweh, a name reserved only for God. The New Testament we see the carpenter, the Jewish carpenter, the Jewish builder to be more than a man. Not only that, the spirit is referred to as being more than a simple spirit. In Acts 5, a couple lies to the church and, and they eventually die. And Peter essentially during a conversation tells them, you've lied to God. A few verses later, you've lied to the spirit. Who'd you like to, the spirit or God or both? Because the spirit is God. Acts 13, the spirit sins just as God himself, what? Sins. In 1 Corinthians 3, to be a temple, Paul says, to be a temple of the spirit implies being the temple of who? God. Put two and two together. The spirit is who? God. Over and over and over again, we see that our God is multifaceted. And the New Testament writers, the people, our, 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 our forefathers, you might say, they were Jewish. And they maintained the Jewish Shema from Deuteronomy 6, which says, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, or the Lord is one. And they maintain God's oneness monotheism, while acknowledging that the Jewish carpenter is God along with the spirit. And they would say things like, we have one spirit. We have one Lord or one Yahweh and one God and Father. A couple of references for us. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, go and make disciples and baptize them in the singular name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. I'm not a good English person, but some of you guys are. You don't use names singular and then list a bunch of different names in there. 
There's a S that goes in there in English. But it says, in the singular name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. In our text this morning, Paul reminds us, for even if there are so-called gods, 1 Corinthians 8, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, catch this, yet for us, there's what? One God, the Father. One, not two, there's how many? One God. All things are from him and we exist for him. And for us, there is one what? Lord. One Yahweh, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. I can keep going. 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says there's a variety of gifts, but one spirit. A variety of services, but one Lord. And one God who empowers all people. My favorite one is Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. We have one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. They maintain Jewish monotheism while seeing Jesus, along with the Spirit, along with the Father, being that one God that we call Yahweh. Our God is multifaceted. Now, if you know history really well, eventually the apostles grew old and they died. But before dying, they passed the, the tradition, the teachings to their followers. And their followers continued that, 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 that teaching in those traditions, holding on to them. So we meet a guy named Tertullian, an African man from North, Northern Africa. And Tertullian tells us we have a Trinitas in Latin, from which you get the word what? Trinity. The first to coin that term. We have one who is three. We have three who are one. Now, eventually, there are groups that rose up. Challenging, is Jesus really fully God? Is the spirit truly God? Or are they not made up or created? The church met, discussed things, looking at scripture, and what was passed down to them, and they developed what we call creeds. There are several in the Apostles' Creed. We have up there on the... To, to my left, left over there. There's a Nicene Creed. But my favorite is the constant notebook creed written in 381. And here's a summary of what Christians believe based on scripture about who God is. L let me read it to us. It says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus the Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father before all worlds. Light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And they go on. They come up to the Spirit. It says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who is in unity with the Father and the Son, and is worshipped and glorified alongside with them. This is our God. In other words, what they're saying is this. Talking about God, we have one being, one essence. The idea of essence or being is the idea of what something is. So, for example, uh, we in here are all humans. Is that true? Cool. Okay, we're all humans in here. We have, we possess qualities that we call the human nature. Human nature. What something is. 
With God, God has a divine nature. It's only true about God. So they're saying here, we have one what, and that one what is the divine nature, is God. But to keep going, that one what is enacted or is lived out through a person. In God's case, three persons. So for example, I'm a human person. I act out the human nature through my personhood. You do the same thing in your own way. So with God, we have one what. And yet three persons acting out the same, that one what together. One God who is three persons. Not the persons, the Father is unbegotten. Again, the word here basically means is he has no beginning. He, he does not originate from anybody. While the Son originates from the Father, he is generated, he is begotten from the Father. And the Spirit is breathed out or proceeds from the Father through the Son. Now, when I read this, I'm like, oh, there's an order. The Father comes first, then the Son, and then the who? Holy Spirit. That's false. The word eternity there, or yeah, eternity, means there's no what? Beginning. So you can't say the Father came first, then the Son, then the Spirit. That is not true. There's no time in eternity. The minute you think about the Father, you think about who? The Son and the Spirit. That's why Jesus will say, when you see me, you see who? The Father. Why? Because unlike us, right, I'm a human person and a human being. When you see me, you don't see all the humans out there. You just see me. But with God, when you see the Father, guess who else you see? The Son and the Spirit. When you see the Son, who do you see? The Father and the Spirit. Because they're one. And each person is fully and completely God. They're not parts of God. They're not aspects of God. They're fully and completely God. Well, we can say God came down and God died on our behalf and God rose again. Each person is completely and fully God. And the three persons, I would argue, are one in all things. Not just in purpose, not just in work, in being as well. We say God is triune, the Trinity, because God has made himself known as triune. God has revealed himself throughout scripture, throughout history to be triune. Now, why does this matter? Why is it important for God being triune? Uh, this week I was talking to Brother Ray. He told me, you know, if I was making up a God, I would not do this. I would not do this. This is stupid. <laughs> it, it, this is not a smart idea. It's illogical. Makes no sense. We have one God who's three. What? Makes no sense. Unless it truly is the way it is. And how it's been revealed and made known 
to us. This matters because there are people in our society who would say, hey, guess what, guys? We have the same God. We praise and worship the same God. Far from the truth. If your God is not triune, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. If your God is not Father, Son, and Spirit who are one and equal in all things, you are not worshiping the God revealed in Jesus Christ. You have an idol, you have a false God, or a misunderstanding of who God is. This week, um, on, I think it's Tuesday, Tuesday night, we're having dinner and our doorbell rings. Or, or we hear a knock on the door. And our two little ones, I'm like, God, just stay here. We'll just be quiet. Let's, let's ignore them. It's probably a, a, a telemarker trying to sell something. But our two little ones run and go to the window. I'm like, I got, I got to go now, right? <laughs> so I, I go over and Kayla's like, who is it? I'm like, it's two ladies and they're Mormon sisters. Hey, we're Christians. We want to talk about, about Jesus Christ. I'm like, well, if you're a Christian, then what? what, what? Like, what, what? I'm a Christian too, so why, why talk? Well, I, I couldn't think of a lie at that point. I'm like, hey, guys, uh, let's meet at some point. So I gave my number. And so we met on Friday at 1 o'clock at a coffee shop. As we're talking, I'm like, hey, guys, tell me about, tell me about God. Well, we believe God is three different beings. The Father has a body. The Son has a body. And the Spirit is kind of a spirit. I'm like, wait, what? Where is that out in Scripture? Well, this is Book of Mormon. I'm like, okay, well, time out, 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 time out. And over and over again, I'm just trying to tell them we have the same God. I'm like, guys, we don't have the same God. We have a different God. If your God is not triune, we don't have the same God. If the God's not, not, not the same God, who are we worshiping? If not a God that we've made up to fit our logic, our brains, which are puny, by the way. Our God has made himself, has revealed himself to be triune, to be unique and completely other. He's done so in creation. He's done so in his word. We have one God, the Father Almighty, one Lord, Yeshua, Yahweh, and one Spirit who is in us, as a giver, sustainer of life. That's how God has revealed himself to us. Let's bow our heads, guys. As the worship team comes up, and there will be prayer partners up here to pray with you. During the worship, I want to have you guys think and reflect Hey, I've been a Christian for all my life, for most of my life, but maybe I've been worshiping a different God that I've made up, that makes more sense to me. I've been a Christian all my life, for most of my life. I've been worshiping this God, but I now know him in a different light. I want to ask you and invite you to come and pray with the elders up here. You may say, well, hey, I'm not a Christian at all, but I want to be. I want to be a follower. I want to be committed to this triune God. I want to ask you to do the same. You're going through pain, suffering, injury, hurt, or prayer of any kind. Our elders are up here to pray with you and for you. Lord God, you've made yourself known. You've told us who 
you is, who you are. You are a mighty God. You are a triune God. And you are unique and completely different from all other things. May we leave here today knowing that, affirming that, and being a witness to who you are. Thank you for creating us, redeeming us, sustaining us. All this for your glory and your renown. Amen.